Hallelujah. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before your presence this morning, humbled at the awareness that it's only by your grace and by the purchasing, cleansing power of Jesus Christ's own shed blood that we can dare approach the throne. I thank you, Father, that you have purchased a way of fellowship clear of sin between us lowly creatures and you and all your majestic holiness help us today as we open your scriptures the immutable word of truth to realize to greater degree the manifest beauty of what happened to us when we were saved born again set apart by your powerful holy spirit for your will and purposes If there are any in this place whose hearts have not been awakened from the sleep of spiritual death to realize the power and beauty of resurrection life in Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray that you would call to Lazarus, come forth today as we open your scriptures and speak not my words, not our words, but your words. As we strive to understand the truths therein contained, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, even as I pray that it would be your voice that speaks. And anything less, I pray, would be blown away like chaff, so that what remains would produce fruit to bring glory to your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to open the Scriptures this morning and to do so knowing that I'm joined by hungry hearts for the Word of God and I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would even deepen our hunger and our love for the Scriptures today. Open with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 37. Second Sunday of the month is our Psalm a month Sunday. The Lord, in His favor and faithfulness, has given us three years So far in this series, once a month, covering one of these amazing songs. There's enough in Scripture to keep us busy for some time. And once we're done with this series, we might as well just start over. Because to say I've scratched the surface would be a gross overstatement. And especially today, as Psalm 37 has a few more verses for us than is typical, and so will require me to move in a little bit more of an overview fashion, hopefully swiftly through the material, so as to give us a grasp and hopefully a little bit more of an appreciation for Psalm 37 and its 40 verses. I'd like to do something a little different for us this morning. And would you, if you're able, stand for the reading of the Word of God this morning? I just invite you to stand, and I'd like to read these verses The title of this psalm is, He Will Not Forsake His Saints of David. And we read in Psalm 37, verse 1, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land 
and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Verse 9, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, you will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in the abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken." Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall in, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Verse 27, Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power, or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. The word of our Lord may be seated. Psalm 37 is number three of seven acrostic psalms in the book of Psalms. We've mentioned this twice before. In Psalm chapter 3, excuse me, Psalm 
I'm looking for my list here. Uh, Psalm, the, the previous Psalms that mention or that are arranged this way, there's one in, I believe, Psalm 35 is acrostic number two. And reaching back a little farther, we find, I'll find my list soon enough here, but there's a list of seven total of acrostic Psalms in the book of Psalms. The acrostic Psalms are arranged in a unique fashion. Each phrase or beginning of what would be, I suppose, a stanza begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second begins with the second consecutive letter in the Hebrew alphabet and so on. We've mentioned what we might be able to poetically learn from this literary form. It seems that there is a definitive, and certainly it could be said, there's a definitive order in the acrostic psalms, illustrating perhaps the scope of God's providence by this literary device. There is an order and a symmetry, there is a dictation and a beauty to the psalms that I would say is absolutely unparalleled in all other forms of poetry. The Psalms are uniquely fashioned in their Hebraic beauty and form to communicate the aspects and attributes of a God who predestines, who decrees, who executes, who organizes, who faithfully follows His Word with signs following, who provides order, standards, who provides law and precepts. And so in Psalm 37... All these aspects come to the fore as we learn something about religion and politics. That's the title of my message this morning, Religion and Politics. A provocative title for us culturally, as those are the two subjects that we're not supposed to speak of with, uh, lest we risk raising the hair on the back of the neck of our neighbors. We'd rather content ourselves with trivial things, things that don't really matter. Things that don't speak to ethics, right and wrong, eternal norms. Things that really speak to authority structures, purpose, direction, the future, salvation. Those things culturally are sometimes said to be out of bounds. But if we were to presume never to talk about religion and politics, I wonder what percentage of the Holy Scriptures would be out of bounds. Nearly all of it, in fact, as this is systemically a religious book it is inescapable and psalm 37 is unique and even further uh, still in that it relates and intertwines themes of religion and politics in a way that would certainly make the modern liberal consciousness very very nervous we live in an era where separation of church and state is a new, new virtue whereas even common sense itself says that to separate state, the state from highest ideals is a palpable absurdity. Nevertheless, we can pretend to do, we pretend to do exactly that. The scriptures tell us that unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain that build it. The scriptures tell us blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The Bible says our duty Following the Great Commission is to disciple all nations in the Word of Christ, everything that He has delivered. So if we separate ourselves from that calling, and if we separate ourselves from those points of reference in Scripture, we are not only separating ourselves from the Scriptures itself, but our duty 
that it tells us that we ought to do in proclaiming him to the nations. A subtitle for this message could well be taken in its New Testament interpretation, Christianity is in our national interest. Christianity is in our national interest. Have you ever heard that line? We want to go to war. We endorse this policy. We're going to do this certain uh, initiative, speaking in terms politically. Why? Well, there's this blanket qualification that's sometimes offered. This ambiguous blank check to do whatever we will. It's in our national interest. What is often conspicuously missing in political discourse today is what is in Almighty God's interest? Is this policy in line with His dictates, His precepts? Or are we presuming to be arrogant in denying His word in our decisions? Indeed, the Scriptures are in our national interest. Indeed, Christianity is in our national interest. There was a time when religion and politics were more seamlessly woven together, especially from the pulpits in our land. I'd like to read to you a few quotes from a man named Jedediah Morse, the father of the famous Morse who created Morse Code. Samuel, I think, was his name. He was a preacher, and in 1799, he delivered an election sermon. This was given in Charleston, Massachusetts, April 25. He's quoted throughout this sermon as saying things like this, To the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. In proportion as the genuine effects of Christianity are diminished in any nation, either through unbelief or the corruption of its doctrines or the neglect of its institutions, in the same proportion will the people of the nation recede from the blessings of genuine freedom and approximate the miseries of complete despotism. He continues, If so, it follows that all efforts to destroy the foundations of our holy religion ultimately tend to the subversion also of our political freedom and happiness. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present republican forms of government and all blessings which flow from them must fall with them. This isn't made-up quotes that just came across the blogosphere. I actually referenced a sermon and found it on the University of California's digital library. And I was able to see, it's really neat what technology can do, the original printing of this sermon where the ink had started to wear through the paper and you could click with your mouse and page after page of almighty truth from the Scriptures applied to this nation's interest was delivered from the pulpits in 1799 as represented by this Mr. Morse's sermon at this particular juncture. The idea of an election sermon was, this is a great time to call our attention to our duty as citizens from the ultimate reference book, the Holy Word of God. Election sermons are probably more, well, certainly more rare today, and I wonder if a few of us may not even know that they existed and were regularly preached from the pulpit. Well, one might ask, what would be the framework? What would be the biblical warrant for giving an election sermon? I'd like to make the case today that the magistrate uh, musician, namely David, is giving something of a political sermon in his song in Psalm 37. You'll notice there's five enlightening stanzas, if you will. Verses 1 through 8, 
open with imperative concerns. This imperative commandment language, do this, do not do that, and the chief concerns that ought to be in the forefront of our mind are underscored for the first eight verses. Secondly, David speaks to national defense. He speaks to the meek and how they can know they are safe from their enemies who bear the sword and bend the bow. Thirdly, verses 16 through 26, David speaks to domestic policy. He speaks to economics. He speaks to famine, to agriculture, and to just ways and means in dealing with the fiscal goings-on of a country, of a people, as well as individuals. Uh, Fourthly, he deals with jurisprudence. There's law, justice, righteousness themes in verses 27 through 34. And finally, finally, this might be an anachronistic term that is kind of a term that we're used to today that they wouldn't have used then. But the term social security, I think, could well apply to the closing of this, book, of this uh, psalm. Verses 35 through 40. How can our future be assured? What is the security of relationships in our society? Ultimately, the question of salvation comes to the fore. So for David, religion and politics were seamlessly interwoven in his life as he was a king and also a worship leader, you could say, and certainly in this psalm. I quoted from Jedediah Morse in his 1799 sermon. I also heard an interesting stat to illustrate on the other side of the coin what happens when psalms like Psalm 37, when the Word of God is not the chief architect of nations and their constitutions. Did you know in the continent where Yeshak, the little 18-month-old, or 18-month-old, excuse me, little boy that hopefully will be delivered to heaven in Jenna in due time here? Do you know in his continent in the last 60 years in Africa, there have been over 500 constitutions? Over 500 complete government restructurings in that continent in just six decades. Why? Why such instability? I'm telling you the answer is in the Word of God. The Word of God gives us the precepts of economic, of jurisprudence, of social, of domestic, of all kinds of stability. If we would simply read, understand, and obey. The Swiss government has been a republic, I learned this recently as well, for 700 years. Why? I would tell you the answer is clear from Scripture. Basic principles to rule and order have been implemented in their history and have produced fruit, impressive fruit. I have no idea how many constitutions whole continents have gone through in 700 years. Meanwhile, there's one small relatively ordered nation who remains steadfast proportionally by much greater degree and I would say because they have implemented more biblical principles than you're apt to see these days. First of all, let's consider imperative concerns. David says in 37.1, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. What are the most important concerns that we ought to set our mind upon? What are our priorities? There's imperative language, that is, commandment language. Do this, do not do that. Fret not yourself, do not worry, do not make it a chief concern, the evildoers that surround you. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, which raises the question, what if we are to build an entire political construct on envy? What if we try to elevate envy to the point of virtue? I won't be content until I have exactly as much money as my neighbor, for instance. In the meantime, I'll consider it a social injustice so long as there is income disparity between me and the rich person next to me. What am I doing? Well, I'm allowing myself to be deceived and being fretful and envious about those who surround me. The wicked may have gotten their riches by wrongdoing, They may not be an upstanding citizen. Nevertheless, there is a sovereign God who controls these things, and it is not necessarily my prerogative to presume that I have the right to steal from my neighbor until everything is equal. Again, in verse 2, they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the herb. Do you see whose jurisdiction it is to take care of these particular issues? There are some things to leave in the hand of God. But what are we to do? Verse 3, instead of trusting in riches, trusting in schemes, trusting in worldly governments, we are to trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And so it goes. The style of this poem I mentioned is an acrostic poem, which is distinctive also of wisdom literature. There's precept upon precept, one right after the other. And if you notice, this chapter reads like the book of Proverbs. We find the author has some experience. Verse 25, I have been young and now am old, yet have not seen the righteous forsaken or the children out begging for bread. We would be wise to heed the words of this skillful and experienced magistrate who writes these uh, precepts for us. He has lived a day or two and he has applied the word And he has figured a few things out. And so it is incumbent upon the younger mind, who is full of energy and zeal, but sometimes lacking knowledge, to sit at the feet, as it were, of those who have gone before and learn what is our chief concerns. And so it ought to be our posture that we would learn from David, an anointed king, a magistrate of Israel, who dealt with many issues on a daily basis, as to foreign policy, domestic policy, and not to mention his own spiritual life. Now, these applications that I'm bringing forward from this psalm might surprise you. This verse I'll trust is familiar, however. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Here's another familiar one, often quoted and memorized. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast down. Verse 24, for the Lord upholds his hand. See, those verses are very familiar to us 
Because sometimes we miss the context of the value of what words and messages and chapters like this have to offer for us in Scripture and instead reduce the Scriptures to something like what I call pietistic cherry-picking. There's particular verses in here that deal with our heart and on an individual level and are very important for our personal life. Pietistic means that that which pertains to our relationship with the Lord, our own holiness and our individual piety or relationship with Him. Now, that is a very important principle to take from the Scriptures and indeed this psalm. I'm only making the case in this message that it's not the only way that this psalm should be applied. Let me tell you, or let me give you what I hope to be further proof of that. Notice a recurring theme. The recurring theme in this psalm is not just the individual's relationship with the Lord, but I would trust the emphasis is, or I would actually make the claim that the emphasis is on something else. Notice in verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And notice this dwell in the land phrase there. There's an idea of taking dominion and possession of what would be a country, a nation, a city-state, or one's own property. There's property and social context to this psalm. But notice it again in verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall, what? Inherit the land. Do you see again the property connotations? Inheritance, property, land is coming to the fore again. Verse 10, in just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Again, there's a geopolitical, if you will, reference point. The wicked will eventually lose their claim to the land as the evildoers act in faithfulness and take stewardship and dominion over it. We continue, and some of these are implied. Some of them are clearly expressed explicitly. Verse 18 and 19, here's an implied area. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. And again, there's this idea of heritage and also that which the land produces for you. The yield, the crop, the harvest. There's times of want referred to in famine and also abundance, which means the land is productive. We continue on verse 22. Blessed for those blessed by the Lord shall again inherit the land, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. Verse 27 Turn away from evil and do good, so, you, so shall you dwell forever. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord, keep His way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. So you see it time and again, these reference points referring to the land. This psalm, among other things, gives us great principles for how we are to act in a way where we can worship God in all things, in our day-to-day exchanges of money, in the stewardship of our own property, in our relationships with our neighbors, in our walk with the Lord, and even in the bigger picture of the redemptive scope of His promises. Now, as far as the wicked are concerned, they're spoken of in reference to the land as well. 
But they're compared to something transient and seasonal. Verse 2, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Verse 10, in just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Verse 20 says, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. And so here in metaphorical, poetic language, the wicked are compared to the seasonal or transient nature, that which blooms for a moment, but then withers and passes away. But the righteous, those that follow the Lord, His covenant people, they are to expect promises, security, stability, a future, and a hope. And so we have in the intrinsic application in this psalm, not just pietistic advice, so there's great principles there, but also practical advice. Practical advice for us to know how the word says, the word, or how we can be obedient to the calling later in whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I would also draw your attention to this first section where the commands in the imperative language is concentrated. In verses 1 through 8, this is the area having to do primarily with worship and putting the Lord first, making the foundation of our hope and our stance and where we stand as a people and as a nation on the Lord. And this is where all the commandments are given. Again, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. The very foundation and the basis for how Israel would remain in the land was to put the Lord first, to make His ways their chief concern. If Israel was most concerned about the fact that there were giants in the land, what were they apt to do? They would be apt to cower in fear or to put their trust in chariots and horses. If Israel, the nation of Israel, was most concerned about everything that proceeds, that follows as application, like those, the enemy forces that surrounded them, or economics, I won't feel secure until I have a lot of money, or even their law and legislative system, if they proceeded in, social, in taking steps towards their own social security, if they got the cart, that is to say, before the horse, then they would be out of order, upside down, and would tend to instability and ultimately judgment. And thus we find in the structure of this psalm that the chief concerns, the first things first, are to delight, are, are to delight ourselves in the Lord, and then He will give us the desires of our heart. First things first, the foundation of any house that is built, whether a nation, an individual, or a church, or the kingdom of God, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. I've been reading some history over the last few years, and there are many astute historians that are agreed that when you look at the rise and fall of nations, 
you can see their rise and fall paralleled by certain litmus tests. And among them, some of the ones that I have found in my own study to be recurring are these. Defenses, agriculture, sound money, and sound law. That is to say, if a nation has a sound defense, a sound agriculture, sound money, and sound law, that nation tends to endure. It's interesting, because these indeed are the categories that Psalm 37 addresses. The Bible is genius. Religion and politics are established in Scripture. God gives us the basis for sound defense, sound agriculture, sound money, and sound law. His Word is sufficient. His Word is purposeful, direct, it's powerful, it's rich, and it can speak to every area of life and society. And so we find it. Two examples, one I gave earlier was Switzerland. If you look at Switzerland, you would find that there is sound defense in that nation. I've heard it said that Switzerland doesn't have an army. Switzerland is an army. Each individual is just about, certainly the able-bodied men, are ready at a moment's notice to be armed to protect their property and their family. There's a high degree of propriety that is placed within that particular nation that has served to insulate it from the instability of nations around them in a pretty dramatic fashion. Not holding them up as a standard, I'm just holding them up as a historical example. Also, in Switzerland, if you were to sell a property that was agricultural related, it's illegal to sell it to anyone but a farmer. Also, sound money, we've heard of Switzerland and their trusted banks and so on, and sound law would be a factor as well. Byzantium, the empire, Christian empire, though errant by many degrees of theology, nevertheless had these four things that were really encoded within their society. Strong defense, agriculture, money, the gold standard, and good law, generally speaking. And that empire endured for nigh a thousand years. So we find that in the testimony of history, God's word proves the hero. We look at nations that lose and leave the principles of Scripture. I'm telling you, these are basic. They're based in the Ten Commandments, but they're good applications. And ones that we should consider as important. Because we can honor God to the degree that we honor His word. And we can actually support principles and we can support policies within our own nation that could serve to not just increase the extent of the security and hope and future of our land, but more importantly, the glory of God. Next point to consider, perhaps, five enlightening stanzas. I've just given you imperative concerns. Secondly, national defense. Verse 9, For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Right there from verse 9, you see quite a contradiction, don't you? There's a commandment there. There's an instruction to wait for the Lord. The psalmist has just told us, do not fret about yourself or do not fret about the evil one. Do not fret. Do not worry. And then he says, in contrast, rather, wait for the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, who don't get frantic in their own means and scrape together by their own power, their own wisdom, and their own merit, 
ways of defending themselves, those who pay close attention to God's word and seek him first, they are the ones who will have a strong national defense. Spiritually speaking, we know this is the case in our own lives. If we trust in the Lord and fight our battles the Lord's way, then he proves victorious. He gets the glory. If we avail ourselves of the means of our spiritual implements of war, sword of the spirit, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, we have the power through the Holy Spirit to thwart the plans of the evil one. So it is for a nation and so it is for the kingdom. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Secondly, there's two different dispositions, if you will, that are spoken of here. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Building on that weights versus fret point is this disposition of, we- of meekness that is spoken of here. What is meekness? In Matthew 5, 5, this language might be familiar to us because Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I would say from the context of Scripture that a meek man is certainly one who does not trust in his own arm, in his own ability, and his own strength. A meek man is one who has the ability by walking in the Spirit to wait for the Lord. And thus, those who remain, those who inherit, those who are blessed, those who endure, those who eventually walk in abundance of peace are the ones whose disposition is meek. Now, there is a disposition in God against the evil one. We might ask the question, where is justice? If we are called to turn the other cheek, as the Bible says in some places, or to trust that justice will be served in God's way in His due course, we might be tempted to fret about that. We are counseled in this passage not to worry about the plight of the wicked one because the Lord in His omniscience marks and plots the path of the evil one, knows everything from the beginning, and will in His perfect timing exact justice. Notice in verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. There is a derisive laugh. It's an adjective for derision. That comes from Psalm chapter 2. The Lord mocks. The Lord looks from the heavens at the arrogance of man and says, You stupid, foolish idiots. If you only knew your future. The Lord can do that kind of thing because He is God. He is perfect. And when the Lord stands in His holiness and righteousness and says, you fool, today your life is required of you, that is a thunderous, fearsome indictment from heaven that cannot be avoided. And man will not answer for unless he is under the blood of Christ. The psalmist is teaching us, let God Hold your grudges. Let God keep a record of wrongs. You worry about yourself and you put justice in His hands. Only be faithful and obedient to Him. Do justly insofar as it is delegated to you. But stand in meekness, stand in faith, and stand secure. Because the Lord sees the injustice of the world. He sees the wickedness 
And he laughs because he knows the appointed day of judgment will soon come where every fool will answer for his wickedness. This is how he does it. Verse 14. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. We're speaking about this section as to national defense. The Lord promises Israel, if they stand and wait for Him, if they do not fret, and if they are meek, that in His perfect time, He will turn the enemy's weapons against them. He will confuse them and rout them, and indeed all of the surrounding enemies will pursue a suicidal course. Did this happen in the history of Israel? Absolutely. Over and over again, but only, mind you, only when the imperative concerns were in place. Before David would go to war, what would he do? Seek the counsel of Almighty God. Before the armies were dispatched with the singers moving first, what was the course of action that was taken in that account in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, they sought the face of the Lord. They fasted and they prayed. They made themselves meek and humble. They said, our enemies surround us. We are powerless to defend us, but we serve a mighty God. And he can rout them and destroy them in an instant. Think of the story of Gideon. What were the weapons of choice in the inscrutable wisdom of God? A pitcher? What? A torch? What is that? Against an army of thousands well-trained, well-armed, ready for action, militantly setting their face against God's people, a haggardly band of misfits who didn't have proportional training and technology and skill and strategy. Well, the Lord gave Gideon a plan, but not until he had reduced his numbers to a painful few, but that was to show that it is his mighty outstretched arm that routes the ungodly. When we consider our own safety concerns in our nation today, are we guilty in the typical American consciousness of trusting in the modern equivalent of chariots and horses? Do we place more faith in our clandestine operations, in the FBI, the CIA, covert operations, diplomacy, sanctions, strategy, war machine, missiles, tanks, destroyers, aircraft carriers, fighter jets, standing army, experts, technology, nationalism, councils, people wise in their own eyes? Are these the things that are in our national interest? Are these the things that we justify to keep us safe in our national interest? I would tell you today, if you watch the news, it's easy to make a judgment call on this one. When we're surrounded by enemies, when we feel threatened by a geopolitical situation, how many of our magistrates call for fasting and prayer? How many of the pulpits ring with an election sermon that says, these are our priority concerns? You're nervous about the situation in Crimea? You wonder about the global balance of power? And so you're going to vote for someone who will send indiscriminately our treasure and our missiles and everything all over the globe, make dubious alliances with ungodly nations. By the way, Israel was judged every time they did that. Well, let's be best friends with Assyria because they stand between us and Egypt 
And meanwhile, the Assyrians are as wicked as Stalin was in the end of World War II. You can get the parallel there. Whoa, for the safety of our nation and for the peace of the globe, it sometimes forces us to make compromises with the wicked. Is that the policy that David is promoting here? No. He says numbers don't win wars. He says God wins wars. He says God defends His people. He says the Bible is the basis for foreign policy, for national defense. And he says, with the other writers of Scripture, some may trust in chariots and some in horses, but they do so to their own demise. Why? Because the glory of God suffers no competition. And if there is a force that rises up that says, I can do a better job than submitting to a sovereign God and trusting for my future, my security, be it for myself, my soul, or my nation, then the Lord is pleased to destroy that effort so as no idol stands in His presence, so as to allow no idol to stand in His presence. Psalm 37 has stark ramifications for national defense, for our own security, how we think about it. Let's ask ourselves, what makes us feel safe? What keeps us sleeping well at night? I pray that for each one of us, it would be a trust, a commitment a waiting on the Lord, a meekness that understands Him to be the strong warrior and His strong arm to be our secure weapon of choice. This is not to say that it's not wrong for us to defend ourselves. In fact, we have a duty to do so. It can be made clearly in Scripture. But these questions need to be worked out not with man-centered humanistic policies and concerns as our priority, but instead with the Scriptures giving us the basis for how we think about how we govern ourselves and how we establish our own safety. We've considered two stanzas, imperative concerns, national defense. Now let's consider domestic policy. Verse 16, Better is a little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They will not be put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. Our national debt is at an astronomical level. How would we judge the wisdom of that choice of policy in light of what the Scriptures give us here? Well, many of us in our individual lives, we know the wickedness of borrowing. I'm being vulnerable and confessing my own sins to you. I'm saying that I am guilty of larceny of the heart, as some authors put it. That is a sort of greed of the heart that is willing to borrow against my future and maybe even my children's future. I'm praying that the Lord would hold my fiscal uh, responsibilities, the way I think about my own checkbook, more accountable to Scripture. Why? Because I might just be able to harness one more aspect of my life to speak to the truth, the beauty, the genius, and the glory of the Word of God. Not me. If I were to borrow against my children's future, and pad my lifestyle with all kinds of luxuries, I might be able to impress my neighbor, but I'm doing nothing to glorify the Lord. I might be able to, in, uh, to self-indulge a lifestyle that the media 
people around me in a wicked culture says is desirable, but the Word of God says something different. The Word of God says better is a little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Better is a little and righteousness than a lot with greed and envy, avarice and cupidity. Aren't those cool words? They mean the same thing. I just got them from some old English stuff I was reading. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. And then notice, this is the context in which appears the next two verses. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds him with his right hand. It says in other, uh, other versions, upholds his hand. In this passage, we see that everything from our spiritual condition to our money can apply to this call to have our steps ordered rightly before the Lord. Consider the Word of God before your next economic decision. What is the bottom line? You know, in our nation again today, we'll vote for anyone who can promise jobs. But what will they do to make good on that promise? Are they willing to break God's Word? Are they willing to make poor decisions? Are they willing to go into astronomical debt to make promises that they really shouldn't be making anyways? These are the kinds of things we can ask. Think about ourselves, think about our nation, and think about ultimately the glory of the Lord. You know, another note from history, there is a correlation between famine and unbacked currency. If you look back in the history of nations, Oftentimes you see a famine preceded by not trading with legitimate just weights and balances money. When you leave a gold standard, when you start throwing paper around, sometimes it can lead to famine. Oftentimes it does. Why? Because we're lying. We're stealing. We're breaking the rules of God to make sure every exchange is backed by good faith value. The Lord says that that which we offer is supposed to be justly, valued with the services rendered. If we lose these principles in Scripture, we get upside down and we become a negative illustration for Psalm 37. You know, and I learned a word recently called shin plaster. And it's exactly what it sounds. It's it's a primitive band-aid for your shin. So if you had a wound or whatever that wouldn't stop bleeding, you'd plaster up a piece of paper and you'd put it on your shin. Well, shin plaster... Uh, came, to be re, or came to refer to paper currency. In the Civil War, the United States couldn't afford to pay the soldiers in gold or hard money, so they just started printing money. Sound familiar? And they just started giving them all this paper. And the idea was, yeah, this is good for shin plaster, and that's about it. I can maybe tack up a wound for a few hours, but ultimately this has no value. We've come a long way from sound money policy, a biblical way about thinking about economics uh, these days. You know, I, someone gave me a couple of shin plasters the other day, and I thought, these are awesome. I can buy quite a bit with it. The point is to hold our values and to hold our applications accountable to Scripture, recognizing it's sufficient. Now, we're counseled in this regard in considering domestic policy 
our relationships with one another, our economic decisions, on our lifestyles generally, we're counseled to think about these terms in the long range, the big picture. Again, verse 25, David writes, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. And you see here a principle in the word of God. The, word, the Lord builds generationally. We build for ourselves. We don't care too much about the foundation. In fact, sometimes mine for it for more stones to put up on the edifice. This leads to an imminent collapse. But the Lord would have us lay more foundation stones than He would have us set flashy capitals on pillars. Rather than impressing others on the surface, He would have us lay a good foundation for ourselves and for our children. And again, this principle applies, yes, to domestic policy, but also spiritually. These things are beautiful, applicable truths across the board. We need to think in the long view. What about the kingdom of God? What about the next generation? What am I doing to make an investment, maybe self-sacrificially, so that the glory of the Lord can continue beyond me? You may be familiar with some of the famous quotes of our forebearers. The pilgrims, for instance, who said that we may be but stepping stones for the next generation. This was a generational mentality that is not so extant today. We don't see that kind of thinking evident in the decisions, the mindset, and the values of our culture today. We might as well spend it while we have it. I remember someone saying tongue-in-cheek, what's money if you don't spend it once to me? You know, the idea being, you know, rather than storing up for a rainy day, rather than laying foundation stones, you might as well indulge. Indulge. What better time than now to live off the fat of your land? Well, the Lord says in His Scriptures that His glory trumps our self-interest, that we are supposed to build in every way so as to sacrificially lay our lives down, whether it be a husband for a wife, parents for children, even serving in like David did as a public servant for the best interest of his country, maybe locally at your job, maybe um, laying yourself down to bring the gospel as a missionary to another nation or to share the truth of Christ and as a testimony to your neighbor. It's these principles that make for a strong people and that build for the future a generational perspective, a big picture vision, a kingdom of God view that doesn't reduce things of value to what we can indulge in the meantime, but look further to the glory of the Lord and His purposes into the future. Next, we move to jurisprudence. David speaks to these aspects in verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. 
And so we see in this section of Scripture these reference points to jurisprudence, justice. There's righteousness, justice, law, trials, and court proceedings that are referred to here. And the implication is God's Word is a standard for jurisprudence. God's Word ought to be our meditation day and night. So when we come up with a difficult decision, could even be a dispute among our children, I had it first. And all of a sudden, you've got a property dilemma on your hands. Are you going to be one trained like Solomon who can step into that situation to resolve the conflict with your children in a way that can point to a principle of Scripture as to private property and relationship to the toy between kid A and and kid B? There's a great opportunity there. And I'm telling you, the book of Proverbs would have you be schooled in how to resolve conflicts even within the home, in a way that upholds His Word and righteousness. Now, every person, if they love the Word of God, and if they apply it this way, will begin to govern themselves, their lives, their family, better and better. And these are the principles that lead, ultimately, to a just, free, and secure society. If you want to do an interesting word search at some time, Download Webster's 1828 Dictionary and look up government. It's great to, it was pointed out to me several years ago that you can do this, you can get a different worldview represented in the way a more Christianized culture used to think before things went to heck in a handbag across the whole board of American values. Well, you go back and you look up government and you find the primary government is self-government, self-control. That's governing self, is it not? Secondly, governing our families well. It says in the Scriptures that a man is not fit to govern a church unless he governs his family well. Thirdly, you have church government, which is necessary, where we hold ourselves accountable to the Scriptures and we order our affairs in things to bless and help the needs of the widow, the orphan, and the poor, and to reach reach out with the long arm of the kingdom of God and the bullhorn of truth to bring the precepts of God's law to a wicked culture dying in their sins. And then finally, their civil government, which serves, I would say, biblically, a very little, limited, yet legitimate role. These standards of jurisprudence were encoded even in the law books of our nation back in the day. And I'm saying, I'm, it's really back in the day now. But you go back and you can see some of these reference points. I've got to thank Danny for shooting me a lot of emails that point out some of these treasures of our past that are easily overlooked today. You guys might be familiar with Lady Justice, you know, that blind woman who holds the balances in her hand. That's kind of a familiar imagery for law for us. Well, there's something significant pictured there. The balances demonstrate that there is an ethical standard. There is a norm that does not change that remains on one side of the balances and by that norm, all other difficulties and challenges are measured. Now, listen to the Supreme Court and do a little discernment as you listen to the news and ask yourself, what is the ethical norm and the standard that is on the one side of the balances that is employed today? Well, I'm telling you, usually it's completely arbitrary, totally false, utterly humanistic, based in sin, and will only lead to destruction and judgment because the Word of God is not being glorified more often than not. Such was not always the case. There's another picture of a woman that's actually painted in the Library of Congress. And this isn't Lady Justice, this is Lady Anarchy. And she's trampling out the Bible, and she's burning the scroll of learning trampling out the Bible. She represents anarchy, 
lawlessness, destruction, collapse, breakdown of society, destruction of the land, you know, financial systems falling apart, anarchy, complete chaos. That's what she represents. What is she doing? She's stamping out the Word of God and she's burning the scroll of learning. She doesn't recognize the providence of the Lord. She's not interested in wisdom and she's saying the Word of God is something to be repudiated, to be put away from us. Now, it's, I don't know how many hundred yards from that building we have the halls of legislature and how many lady anarchies, uh, if you will, are serving in that very hall which is responsible for directing the laws of our nation and putting forth legislation and so on and securing our future. I'm telling you, they stamp on the Word of God more often than they proclaim it. I'm telling you, they denigrate the providence of God. They do not care about wisdom. They're wise in their own eyes more often than not. So we live in a time where these principles from Psalm 37 are extremely applicable. Righteousness and justice and law can only be established with confidence and with effectiveness if they're established on the Word of God. Only then will the righteous inherit the land. Only then will God be glorified. Only then will His Word prove with signs following that it works and it produces fruit and it serves to honor the Lord instead of standing in opposition to Him. Final point. Verses 35-40 through talk about the future. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. There's no future for this man. He sprung up quickly, reminds us of the parable of the sower that we studied recently. Sprung up quickly, spread out, but then withered away. Behold, he was no more. Verse 36. Though I sought him, he could not be found. 37. Mark the blameless and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. What promises do we look to? And what promise makers do we trust? Do we trust the promises of what this life has to offer? What worldly wisdom would suggest? Do we look to policymakers in Washington, the ones that more often than not repudiate the Word of God? Or do we look to the Word of God itself? Because there is no future in the promises of the wicked and ruthless man who blooms for a season and spreads out and looks like he has a lot of influence, but shortly he passes away and is no more. And though I sought him, I couldn't, he could not be found. Reminds us of the late, what we often call great empires of the world. They collapse in an hour. They crash in an instant. They're imposing and formidable on the face of it. But just like the statue in Daniel, at their feet is a mixture of iron and clay. And there is a stone that will destroy every authority claim that is not based on the kingdom of God. And whether it be... Rome, Greece, Persia, Babylon, the Empire of France, the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the American Empire, any empire, if they mix clay and iron as it were in the self-centered ways and means of man, they will be crushed ultimately by the stone of God's kingdom 
and they will prove again a negative illustration to this message so as to show there is no future in the word and way and laws of man so long as he denies the ultimate, immutable, authoritative word of God. The transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. In closing, there's perhaps three ways we could apply this whole psalm. We mentioned that there's a theme referring to the land. First of all, we can well apply this psalm on our personal level. What do we trust in? What do we hope in? As we've mentioned several times. Secondly, we can apply this psalm as to the state of affairs, and we should, I'm arguing, in our own nation. But thirdly, there's a picture in the promises of old and in the promised land that speaks to a bigger plan of God that would be ultimately consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, when the Bible speaks of salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, it's speaking in the near term, hope for the future by sound policies, yes, but it's speaking most ultimately of a nation, of a people, of an individual who trusts in the Lord that the redemptive historical plans for all of mankind will be manifest in God's perfect time by the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Revelations twenty-two eleven, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Of whom are we speaking? Jesus Christ. And who is he in this verse? He is the ultimate and final judge. And who will stand before the dock of heaven? Everyone, every kingdom, every authority, every individual. And at that point where God says, reckoning today, reckoning now, the filthy will be filthy still, the righteous will be righteous still, and only those who are convicted by the word of God and justified in Christ's blood will stand on that day. Everyone else who found hope ultimately in any other plan of salvation, any other scheme of man, will be separated from the promises of God. They will not inherit the promised land, eternal life. Jesus is the judge who is uh, the Alpha and Omega. He says, verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It reminds us of the acrostic poem, which begins with the first letter of the alphabet and, be, and ends with the final. And just as Psalm 37 declares to us in literary form that the Lord's providence is comprehensive, so the name of Christ declares that His authority is comprehensive. He is the first and the last the beginning and the end. And indeed, all authority on heaven and on earth has been delegated to Him. Verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. And there again is that language, civic language, a city and a gate, entrance. There is this ultimate picture of property, of a city-state, of a place that we will join together in one day 
that Jesus Christ has purchased our entrance for at the cost of his own blood. But not everyone is welcome there. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves the practice and practices falsehood. And so the stakes are high. Let us consider it a grace and a great gift that God has given us very tangible ways, whether we're looking at the policies we support politically, whether we search our heart and see what gives us the most confidence personally, any of those things, let us consider it a grace that God gives us practical ways to judge where our hope and security lie. Are we engaging as a church in the political discourse, in authoritative way, in the way that we worship the Lord? Do we demonstrate by our faith and express confidence that He is King of kings, that He is Lord of lords, that His rule has no end, that He is Lord and God of the city-state heaven, that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end? Let us listen to David, the great magistrate and, and musician as he sets the tone to call his church, to call the church to repair to the standard of Psalm 37 and Revelation 22, that we would serve to glorify the Lord until everything is under his feet. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, I pray that you would draw to our attention areas of our life that may need conforming to the authority claims of Scripture. Help us, Lord Jesus, to trust that in you alone is salvation and none of the short-term benefits and short-term promises are valuable, but only perish with the using. Thank you for the wisdom of your scriptures. Lord, I pray only that which is really representing your scriptures would stick in our minds today and let anything of chaff blow away. Only that you might be glorified, that your kingdom might advance, and that we might one day be joining in worship and praise, cheering on our conquering war hero, Jesus Christ, from behind those gates of safety and glory one day, knowing the only reason we are there is because Jesus Christ has paid for our sins with his blood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.